Yo, yo, this is Justin B. Bieber. Hey, it's Ariana Grande. Just the interviews. A Zach Sang Show exclusive podcast. Hello, beautiful human. We <laughs> have Dan here and we have Sinead Burke. Hey. Hang out. Very exciting. Thank you. Now, where are you in the world right now? I'm currently in New York, so not too far from you. No. Um, I'm based in Ireland usually, but I'm here in New York. I Yeah, it's very exciting. So are You're you in, in L.A.? Yeah, I am in L.A. right now, hanging out in our studio, a place that I don't leave much. I'm right. uh, very attached to it. But are you, a, are you a traveler? Like when you do your podcast, and when I was listening, it sounds like you go to your guests. I do. So as much as possible, I try to be in the room inches away from my guest. So much of what my show, As Me with Sinead, is about is creating vulnerable spaces for people to be themselves. And I think the way in which that intimacy is most concretely created is by sitting in front of someone and as much as possible trying to forget that the microphones are there or that people will listen to this but creating a real sincere connection with somebody through a shared empathy and understanding that life is both brilliant and awful and we all experience that in different ways and by yeah sitting across from somebody I think you can have that conversation in a truer way and by entering their environment i feel like a lot of the times mm-hmm. you're going to them like when i was listening to you and victoria beckham which it was a great conversation you went to her office right i did and it's this surreal space to be hanging around with all of her vma spice girl awards <laughs> <laughs> which are in the corner and as somebody who grew up very invested in the fandom of the spice girls to see that as a reality and to be in her office which is a brilliant but noisy place when you're recording a podcast that's real <laughs> interesting um but it was incredible to like that be where somebody at least feels safe. I think, again, creates the room for them to just admit who they are in a way that possibly they haven't before. See, that's where I can't do that. I can't deal with other noises that are not my own noises. I need to be in control of every variable for a conversation. Because What's your star sign, Zach? Uh, I am a Taurus, born May oh, okay. 2nd. I am on I the see. pattern. Yeah. Mercury ain't fucking with me too hard yet. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I'm a Virgo. It's all up in my business. B- by the way, we could blame Mercury for our technological problems. I see. I blame the universe for all things bad and myself I take praise in for all things good. <laughs> is that a healthy thing to do? Because a Zach, lot of don't ask difficult questions. That's not what this is about. <laughs> because a lot of times I do find myself thanking the universe because oh. I, I, I don't know. Like, yes, I do believe I've worked very hard and we all collectively on this show, we work very hard and we we work for our accomplishments. But there is a little bit of the universe at play because luck in the universe only goes so far. Consistency is where you know, hard work comes in sometimes. I don't know. I used to describe myself as being very lucky. And I used to say it without even thinking about it. It was a script for myself. And my mother sat with me one day, and she is an amazing person who advises me regularly, particularly advice that I don't want to hear. And she said to me, you know, by saying that you're lucky, it is undermining everything that you invest in this and whilst yes there is this opportunity that may come about that you have no control over but I think we're each very disciplined and the trajectory that I have traveled through is not accidental and I think it gives people this incentive and this idea that you were gifted all of the opportunities and the work that you did when it's just not possible the world doesn't function like that you don't get to exist in a powerful or interesting space just by waking up every morning. You're 100% right. And, and when you look at your trajectory, like, was this a day-by-day, figure-it-out-as-you-go type plan? Or did you have a very strong vision for yourself 
early on in in how you would I don't want to say fit in, but what your your passion path would be. I'm very lucky to be born into an incredible family. My parents are two of the most amazing people, I think, on this planet. My dad is a little person like me. My mom is average height. And when I was seven, they founded Little People of Ireland, which is the national organization for people with dwarfism and their families. And they literally built a community so that I could see myself in other people before the existence of the internet. And my advocacy started accidentally through them because other parents were coming to my mom and dad and saying, our child is getting a tough time in the playground. Can anybody come in and share their story and educate not just the students, but the teachers and people who live differently? And my parents, in their infinite wisdom, said, Sinead's a teacher. She can go. And I was on buses and trains, which were very inaccessible forms of transport, but going up and down Ireland and facilitating conversations about being vulnerable. And for me, you know, I always thought that I would be a teacher forever. And within that process, and when I was in college, I started a blog talking about my interest in fashion. And I don't want to make this sound kind of haphazard in that one thing led to another. I'm guided by a very rigid moral compass. And I think particularly within advocacy, I'm very driven by purpose and by ensuring that change is broader than me and ensuring that the work that I do and the places in which I get to exist can architect platforms and spaces and seats at tables for other people who have been either marginalized or haven't been included before or just want to participate in the same way as everybody else. So I think being driven by that mentality has afforded me opportunities that maybe otherwise would have been impossible. So then how do you measure success for you in your life professionally and personally? I have four questions that I'm really always trying to answer when an opportunity comes about or if I'm pitching something. And that is, does this fulfill my goals and dreams, which are constantly evolving? Does this pay the rent? (laughs) Does this give back? And does this bring other people with me? And everything has to answer yes to more than one of those questions. Or I say no. And that gives me real freedom and real flexibility because, I mean, if you just have to pay the rent this month, but you can find something that somehow links to a goal and ambition or creating space for somebody else it's possible and success for me i don't know i i mean you shared your star sign i'm a virgo and i don't think it's correlated to the stars in the universe but i'm tough on myself you know i think what i say to myself in my head is probably what my greatest enemy wouldn't say you know I'm constantly striving for it to be better for me to be better it was good but maybe it wasn't good enough and that's not necessarily trying to debilitate myself but to constantly be striving for more because I think I'm gifted to be living in an era where powerful people are listening and are flexible to change in some ways and I don't know how long they're going to be listening for so I think I'm driven by this notion that I want to get as much done within this time period in which we have to create change that is sustainable and systemic because I don't know how long it's going to exist for. Totally, because everybody is all years right now. And I think there's a lot of factors that are at play that determine why everybody has this. Like, everybody has their listening ears on. Everybody is down to have a conversation. Now, I think, maybe not more than ever, but now it hasn't been like this in a long time. So what is tangible change to you? What is systemic change? What is success in that realm? Like, is it to make every place in this country accessible to people of all sizes? Is it to change the way kids growing up look at each other? It's all of it. 
I want to see legislation change from something as simple as the legislation that surrounds historic buildings, that we cannot make them accessible because we would negatively impact upon the beautiful architecture that exists. And I think as a society, we really need to question, when do we stop putting pretty buildings before people? When do we stop saying that only certain types of people get to exist in a space, particularly when, I mean, I didn't choose to be disabled, but every government or most governments in this world decide which buildings I get to be part of because the architecture is pretty. Why have we not come up with more beautiful solutions to accessibility that can ameliorate a building rather than detract from it and it's just archaic thinking and what looks like success to me is different voices being in the room so that when we're not hearing the phrase we haven't thought about this before which is what I constantly hear even about the most simplistic definitions of accessible design what success looks like for me is collaboration from the Mm. onset of a project so that disabled voices and people who are disabled get to be architects, get to be artists, get to be fashion designers. I want to see a disabled CEO of a fashion company. I want the work of advocacy not to be limited in terms of chief access officers or chief inclusion and diversity officers. I think those roles are so important, but we can't become complacent within it and say, okay, well, access is what we think about at the very end of a project when we need to fit within legislation. Mm -hmm. For me, success looks like a four-year-old being able to say, who looks like me, I want to be a fashion designer. And for that to be a reality because the cost of studying fashion at a design college is not astronomically expensive or there are bursaries provided by the fashion industry to bring about new talent and for the cultures of those companies to be fair and accessible and open that that person can actually stay in that job for 20 years. I want children to have a language and a vocabulary that is inclusive and I want that to then be mirrored to the adults that exist. I want people to be free to ask questions that they don't know the answers to. I want us to be able to exist in a world where we make mistakes and we learn from them, but we don't cause harm to others within that. Do you thank your parents for this moral motivation, this moral drive to create change that affects everybody? They definitely play a strong part in it, but my background's in teaching, and I taught in a really disadvantaged socioeconomic kind of poor area in Dublin. I taught 12-year-old boys. And I think in many ways that was a real education for me because I had grown up in a world that wasn't designed for me and had viscerally understood that I was excluded and in many ways was probably very singular in that thinking that it was just me who was excluded. And then I went into this area of, you know, and don't get me wrong, like there wasn't huge diversity in the class, but yet still these boys were deliberately excluded from so much you know something as simple as the curriculum when I was told to teach about homes I would teach my boys about cottages with thatched roofs they didn't even know what a farm animal was they hadn't seen one in real life and yet so many of my boys were living in temporary accommodation or were homeless but because the people who designed the curriculum designed a curriculum for them and from their experiences my boys didn't think school was important because why would they I mean they were never reflected in it so I think being a teacher cultivated a broader empathy within me that was more than just about disability or was more than just about being a little person but it was realizing that in so many ways we all feel alone and that has been deliberately constructed because being alone is profitable (laughs) or being alone means that things won't change because we're not united against the systemic barriers that have always existed and for me I think being a teacher at the top of the room helped me understand the importance of communication and language and being able to articulate different viewpoints. But it also helped me understand that in order to change things forever, education is the most important tool to do so. Totally. And by the way, 
it really, you just said something that I never really thought about. There's a business in loneliness. There's a business in separation. Because the truth is, we are all the same. We're all human beings. We have a past, present, we have a future. You know, there's so many pillars in our lives that we all share. That people don't totally understand that. They don't realize it. Because there's just so much more in our society built around different communities. As opposed to one. Absolutely. And for me, I think when we were initially with Lemonada Media kind of talking about what Asmi with Sinead was, it was this bizarre idea where for the first time in your life, you see yourself in Victoria Beckham. I mean, that's wild. But it creates a space in the show where Victoria can talk about being so badly bullied as a child. And it wasn't until she made friends as an adult that she felt like she had permission to be herself. I mean, that's through the lens of international fame. But how many of us didn't feel like we could be part of something until we found that one person who loved us or believed in us as ourselves. And I think we have all had that in some way. And I think exactly as you're saying, you know, the idea that we were all humans. We're living in this era where identity politics has become more and more important. And I straddle this boundary of feeling pride within those various different identities that I subscribe to, both as a woman, as somebody who is disabled. And they have formed the parts of my being that I'm now exist within but then there are many moments in just when I want to be just Sinead and I think we need to create a world where those two parts of ourselves can exist simultaneously because what I don't think is positive is the erasure of identity politics because the structures that we live within are harder if you are trans they are more challenging if you are a person of color they are more difficult if you are queer they are more difficult if you are disabled and those intersections are so important that we recognize and create change intersectionally but i think people just want to be people too beautifully said really Thank beautifully you. said and and i couldn't agree with you more because you're right at this at, at, you can't lose who you are, but you need to understand at the exact same time that, like, at the end of the day, we are really humans. But yeah. trans but people I- have a different path than somebody like me, and they have a, a whole host of different struggles that need to be addressed in both legislation and in the way we act. But the only way we get there is, by the way, education, right? It yeah. starts from the very beginning. It does. And I think in our attempt to be allies, I have an amazing friend, and he constantly says to me, Sinead, I don't see you as a little person. I just see you as you, which in theory, I understand what it is he's trying to say. He's trying to give me the permission to be myself. But the challenge with that is, is that within the context of that language, there is unintentionally perhaps a negative bias towards me actually being a little person because being a little person is my reality. And by lessening that and by equating me to whatever the normality within the societal systems are, You are saying that I am less, even if that's not your intention. But it also gives him permission to then forget about my access needs because he just sees me as Sinead. So why wouldn't it be that I rock up to where he lives and I actually can't get in and can't reach the doorbell or can't do anything with independence because he's never actually seen me as a little person. He's given himself permission to erase that part of me. And and you don't want that. No, because that's the skin and the body that I live in. And I don't see it as a negativity. I mean, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if I wasn't a little person, because if I wasn't a little person, I wouldn't have the emotional intelligence nor the empathy that I've cultivated based on my physicality and the way in which I've moved through the world, which has given me the opportunity to do a podcast. So if I looked like you, I'd 
don't know what I'd be doing because everything that I'm interested in is shaped on this lived experience. I'd be an entirely different person. Do you... I want to bring up something that I had a conversation with one of my best friends. She has a terminal illness and she's had the means over her life to donate to the cystic fibrosis uh, charity. This one in particular that has actually been able to work towards finding a cure for a certain mutation. Amazing. And she's had these financial freedoms that have allowed her to donate. And it's been this terrible thing to live with. I mean, it's a terminal illness. You know, it's been with her for an entire life. And I've had conversations with her where I've told her I don't think of you as sick I just think of you as my best friend I when I hang out with you I don't you know I don't even think about illness and to a certain degree it did hurt her but we had a very impactful conversation when we were just talking about just the the the, the, the pains that come with having a terminal illness and the, the what it does to somebody's life you know how it holds somebody back how it keeps somebody from achieving their dreams all this kind of stuff and I tried to rationalize it like this there's now about to be forever change that comes to the cystic fibrosis community. And I tried to have a conversation with her about that change might not be here today if she wasn't the one who had the disease and the financial freedom to fund a cure and to figure this out. So her hell and her illness is providing solutions and cures for others. So nobody needs to go through this ever again. Yeah, it's it's trying to not, within a disability space, you know, I think we have a problematic relationship with kind of inspiration and and trauma and that the idea that, you know, there's trauma porn or inspiration porn and that me existing gives non-disabled people the inspiration in order to just get up out of their bed every day. And I think we have a difficult relationship with that. But kind of a story that I can correlate with, I do a lot of school visits and I go into schools all over the world and facilitate a conversation about the fact that we're all different. I was leaving a school last year and a young girl who was about 16 ran after me and said, can I just talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. And she sat and I stood so that we were at eye level and she said, how do you continue to exist? And I said, can you give me a bit more context? And she said, sometimes I'm just not sure I should be here. I said, okay. And I said, if you were not here, there would be a void. The people who love you, who know you, there would be a void in the school. There would be a void in this classroom. There would be a void in your family. There would be a void in this country. There would be a void in the world. Because even if at the moment you can't acknowledge it, you have imprinted upon people. You have had an impact. You have made a difference to lots of people's lives. And in my toughest days and in my darkest moments, what I constantly think of is if I survived yesterday, I can survive today. And if I can survive today, I can survive tomorrow. If I can survive this hour, I can survive the next. And not that it is the same thing as a terminal illness, but I think often we are so negligent of the impact that we have on others. Yeah. And sometimes that's deliberate because we can cause harm to others. But sometimes we don't give ourselves the credit of the difference that we make to each other's lives. And I think we need to acknowledge that within our friend circles, within our families, and, you know, say things like, you matter. You matter to me. I matter. Through your disability, 
you are creating and ushering in change that will make the lives for other people who have to deal with what you're going through much easier, right? I mean, do you think of that at all? Like this, this disability is really, I, I mean. Kind of. It's trying to, you know, I'm Irish, so the sense of humility is ingrained within us. I mean, like the Australians have tall poppy syndrome in Ireland, we have this thing called notions. And if one has too many notions, you are reminded of that, those notions and brought back down. But for me, you know, in terms of this, I can only speak for myself. And my experiences as a little person are mine. And they are probably alarmingly different from even other little people because of what they're interested in or they may be taller or whatever it is. But it's also them being cognizant of the fact that when there are few of you, the world decides that what it is that I do and how I behave is how everybody else is. And they set everybody to that standard or to that expectation. And it's being really cognizant of that. But I think my proudest moments have been, I I got to be on the cover of British Vogue and that was personally so thrilling and bizarre and wonderful and amazing and I think if you know 18 year old me could envisage envisage that that was possible she wouldn't have been able to but it was the afterwards it was kids sending me photographs young teenagers sending me photographs in dms on instagram with them holding the cover of the magazine somewhere here in the united states where they got it i don't know or parents particularly non-disabled parents who have just given birth to children who are like me and undoubtedly are caught in this situation of fear and nervousness and worry and concern and sending me photographs of their tiny babies holding the cover of vogue and it's not necessarily about me but the fact that I would have longed for that forever because what does that now give other people permission to do and to dream of how does that change their own ambition because I mean if I can do that they can or what what else can they do based on that and I think we've lived in a world where so few people have seen themselves represented that this moment is about changing that and then I'm really excited like what happens next as me with Sinead Burke. You must listen. You're incredible. Thank you so much for giving us time and energy today. And when you're in L.A., come to the studio and hang out, please. I would love that. Let's go get some sunshine, though, Zach. Oh, would love it. Sinead <laughs> Burke. At, uh, seriously, as me with Sinead. Listen. It's part of the Westwood One Podcast Network where the conversation starts. Appreciate you deeply. Thanks, Zach. Have a great day. This podcast is part of the Zach Sang Show Podcast Network.